Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March the 24th, 2022. This is episode 3060 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Thursday. That means it's time for Expert Council Q&A Show of the Week. Remember, you can send in questions for any of our Expert Council members. If you go to today's episode or any episode about the Expert Council, you'll see a link in it that says Meet the Expert Council. Uh, if you go to the survivalpodcast.com and you go to uh, the About tab, you'll also be able to find the Meet the Expert Council page. You can go there. You see all the experts that we have and the things that they can answer for you. And if you want to participate in a show like this, it's a real simple thing. Fire off an email to me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. And your subject line, this is what you put, TSPC space expert. If you do that, even if it goes into spam hell, I will find it eventually. Then, Jack, my question is for expert council member, fill in the blank. Don't write fill in the blank, put their name. Then, my question is, in one sentence, ask your concise question. Then hit return. Put a break in there before you give me a gob of text. And then give me all the details you think you need to provide to go along with that question. But, trust me, I've been doing this. In June, it'll be 14 years. If you make yourself put it in a question, a single question, then everybody will understand, including you, what you're asking, and you'll get a better answer. If you say, but Jack, I have two questions. Fine. Question one. Boom. Question two. Boom. Space. Details. Okay, But one sentence per question. What if you have three questions? Don't send me one email with three questions. If there's two questions kind of related, you can sneak two in. Above that, send it separately. Send it to a different expert, etc. Alright, so here's what we got for you guys today on the Expert Show. We have number one in the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights. Uh, the irony of Hillary Clinton, and I think this applies to way more than just Hillary Clinton, Testing positive for COVID and then talking about how grateful they are for the vaccine from Dr. Ron Paul and what that means about the COVID vaccine anyway. Dan McAdams on how many enemies does the U.S. really want to make in the world? And, and my response to that is kind of all of them. And I'll tell you why I think they do after their segment. And Chris Rossini over there talks about why every economic bust we have is worse than the one before it. It's like an ever-rising and ever-falling roller coaster. It keeps going higher and dropping lower each time. And can we keep doing that forever? And since we're talking about economics at that point, I thought we would then segue into John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and um, uh, Wealthsteading.com talking about the right corporate structure for a new small business. I'll have a little add-on on that one. Jeff Lawton on developing a food forest with really wet ground. Probably not a better person in the world to answer that question than Jeff Lawton. Tim Toolman Cook will talk about what you should consider if you're going to buy a used generator. And I'm going to give you kind of a formula that I would use before I would buy a used generator. Uh, it's just an economic one, unless you have very specific knowledge as to the contrary. Okay. Darby Simpson will talk about small pigs for small properties like uh, the pot-bellied pig. Uh, 
Derek Bonpietro will talk about choosing a farm vehicle for a small farm in France. Yes, in France. Uh, I think this applies anywhere, though, and I have a thought or two on it. And then I have a quote of the day that I'll be talking about from Bill Mollison. And I love this quote. I've, I've talked about it before, but it really sums up exactly everything that the Survival Podcast is founded on. And, and it's, it's why I consider Bill one of the greatest mentors I've ever had that I've never met. And the quote is, I teach self-reliance, the world's most subversive practice. I teach people how to grow their own food, which is shockingly subversive. So yes, it's seditious, but it's peaceful sedition. So you can let that rattle around in your marble until we get to the end and I talk about it. Before we uh, hear from uh, Ron Paul and his team, though, uh, let me remind you that uh, there is a sale going on on Member Support Brigade right now. If you'd like to support this show, it's the best way that you can do it. It's normally $50 a year. Right now it's $35 a year. And if you sign up as a new customer, that does apply to your recurring charge. You lock the rate in as long as you keep your account active. If PayPal or somebody stupid screws it up and cancels it on you and you didn't want to, I will honor your rate and we will get you back signed up. That's what we do around here. Um, but, like I said, it is on sale. Discount code is MEXICO22. I'm pointing it out at the beginning of the show today so you don't miss it. This is the 24th of March. The 31st of March is right around the corner, and March will end and Q1 will end and tick-tock, tick-tock on the clock, like always. First quarter's over. But the other thing that happens is that, that, that sale ends. And I'm the guy, I'm like, I don't care if your dog ate your discount code or whatever. When a sale ends, a sale ends one minute after midnight on March 31st, which will be April 1st, April Fool's Day, You will be fooled, and you will not get the sale price. So if you want to lock in the sale price now, I would do it now. And since I ran it for the whole month of March and a little bit of February, it's going to be a while before I do it again. So if you want to lock in a low rate, do it now. If you don't know about the Member Support Brigade, here's the basics. You get a bunch of discounts, and you will get your money back if you use even five of them. I'm promising you, if you use five discounts a year, you'll get your money back. In some instances, you'll get all your money back by using it one time. The CBD product stuff is immediate. You have almost instantly get your money back. If you are going to sign up for ButcherBox, it's $120 a year just in ButcherBox savings. So with that, let's go ahead and dig on into it. Let's talk about the Ron Paul Liberty highlights here. In order, you'll hear Dr. Ron Paul himself on... The irony of people who get COVID after getting vaccinated saying they're grateful for the vaccine. You'll hear Dan McAdams on how many enemies the U.S. really wants to make. And Chris Rossini on why every economic bust is going to be worse than the one prior to it. Hillary Clinton tests positive for COVID. Says she's, quote, more grateful than ever for the vaccine. Yeah, you know, she's grateful. And I think, well... What is she talking about? And then I got, hey, you know, in a way, we ought to be grateful because it's pointing out that vaccines don't work. Yeah. And that's what people are already discovering. Yeah. They're, they're not they're not working at all. You know, our, our friend Alex Berenson had an article today. He says the COVID vaccine era is ending already. Uh-huh. You know, he goes on. But uh, he, he's been, you know, reporting on this for a long time. But he made a statement that sort of, in a way, is related to uh Hillary uh, getting COVID. He said, he says, I cannot say this enough times. COVID vaccine restrictions are ending not because the mRNA vaccines 
have succeeded, but because they have failed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no, nobody believes in them, yeah. but they're still bragging about, ah, Hillary has to, she, she has to fit, fit in to the scenario, yeah. you know, and, 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 and they're loyal. They're loyal to the very end. Even on their deathbed, they'll, they'll yeah. be loyal. They say, yeah. But I felt better than if I hadn't had the vaccine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, if you remember, I think was last week. And this was the big story that came out. And the American journalists, just being stenographers for the state, repeated it without looking into it at all. Put this up. U.S. official, of course, unnamed, Dr. Paul. U.S. official, Russia is seeking military aid from China. No sourcing of it whatsoever. Obviously a planted story. And here's what China says in response. This is a week ago. China denies malicious U.S. reports that Russia sought their military aid for the Ukraine wars. But nevertheless, go to the next one. Here's the U.S. response to that. U.S. will punish China if it gives military aid to Russia, Blinken says. So it's, it's, the whole pattern is insane. And where does it come from? It comes from this. Do the next one because this is, this is uh, right after the invasion of Ukraine. Ukraine invasion. China abstains from voting on the U.N. Security Council resolution condemning Russia. That's what started it off, Dr. Paul, because the U.S. demands that China view the situation exactly as Washington does. There are black hats and white hats. You better get on. Remember, as George W. Bush says, you're either with us or you're against us. (laughs) And that's what the U.S. demands. And China doesn't need to play that game because it's big enough that it doesn't need to. And it doesn't want to play that game, so it won't. Well, if it's not enough to start poking China now at the the worst possible moment when you actually want them and need them to be more friendly, the, the, the U.S. government, the State Department, the Biden administration has taken it even a step further and put on that next clip from the Hill. And not only are they taking on China, they're taking on the largest democracy in the world, India. And here's from the 3rd of March. Biden is weighing sanctions on India over Russian military stockpiles. India is a big customer for Russian weapons. And the U.S. says, you can't buy that stuff anymore. India says, well, we need it and we want it. And so we're going to sanction India as well. It does kind of, Dr. Paul, I hate to be crude, but it reminds me of a drunk at a bar who all of a sudden gets up and wants to fight everybody at once. And everyone just looks at him and saying, what are you doing? I mean, this is the stupidest thing you can possibly do. Every artificial boom created by the Fed must have a subsequent bust. It's unavoidable. You know, the Fed uh, artificially pushes down interest rates, and that powers a <laughs> fictional boom. So everything seems great. Look at the houses. You could, uh, how much you could sell them for, the stock market. But when interest rates rise and economic reality returns, that's when the truth is exposed. Uh, and that's what the Fed does to us over and over, these booms and busts. The thing is, we can't just keep doing this over and over. This is not a simple up and down perpetual thing that the Fed has going, because every down is worse than the previous down. 2008 was worse than 2000. And now we are, you know, uh, 12, 14 years later, and it's much worse than 2008. So this is not a simple up and down thing that the Fed can just do forever. It's going to keep getting worse and bigger and worse and more painful. We keep telling them, Dr. Paul especially, for all these years, stop, stop. But they do not stop. They think they can control the uncontrollable, but reality will win in the end. 
But the the way you described uh, uh, Chris about each each episode getting worse, that's why I like to use the example of drug addiction, because the longer you're on drugs, the higher the dose has to be, and that's exactly what is happening uh, with monetary inflation. And then it gets to reach to the breaking point, and we must be awfully close, where you can't do anything about it. And this isn't you know a fixture of nature that we can't do anything about. This isn't like uh, the earth revolving around the sun. We can't do anything ab- uh, about that. This is by choice. The Congress did this to us back in 1913. It's unconstitutional. And all current Congresses keep it in place. It is an imposition on us. So we say that's enough of this imposition. We're tired of this roller coaster economy that only serves the uh, the wealthy and the politically connected, we say, and the Fed. So I'm going to let... Uh, Dr. Paul and, and Chris's comments speak for themselves. The one I want to add a little bit on this week is uh, Dan McAdams. And, and basically the question is, how many enemies does the U.S. intend on creating? And I think the answer is all of them. And I wanted to actually take a different tact on this and talk a little bit about why. Why would we do this? Why would we provoke China at the exact moment that we most need China to be at least reasonably agreeable with us? Is it only because they dared defy us and not vote the way we told them to uh, in the, the, the sham UN Security Council that we created and gave our greatest adversaries veto power over when we did? Um, no. No, that, that might be what would initially cause the, 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 the ball to roll. In our, but what is the overriding strategy here? The overriding strategy that America has is clearly... A divisional strategy to create a hegemon of governments that are with us and a hegemon of governments that are against us. Now, why would you do that? Why would you do that? Let me take you back to World War II. You have a country that just fought a war for almost five years and sacrificed immensely to do so. It's going into immense prosperity. You know it's happening. You can see it happening. The entire economic uh, structure of the nation had shifted during the war. We have a a coming uh, peacetime boom, basically. Uh, We have so much that needs to be done in our own country, and it wouldn't be quite a while before Eisenhower came in and uh, started building the road systems and, and what have you of the highways that really perpetuated a lot of the boom, but there was just a ton coming. You had GIs returning home, they were going back to work, they were using their college fund, the GI college bill, etc. And we just knew we had this massive boom coming. And at the same time, people were becoming more informed. They, the, the GIs went overseas, they got exposed to other cultures, they came back. They were incredibly well adjusted for war veterans compared to what happened to war veterans later on. They had three months, most of them, at least uh, a month of decompression from the war till they got back home with their buddies, they were able to decompress. There was just so much optimism. And all these new ideas were coming up. We were, we were only 15 years out from the 60s, and, and the, the new ideas would come with that. And that was very easy to see it coming. And what we needed was obedience. That's what we needed. We needed obedience. We needed obedience. These people... They're about to have this incredible prosperity. They need something to be afraid of so they will obey us. So let's start a Cold War with Russia. And let's even talk to Russia on the back end. And, and you know, it did cl- get close to getting out of hand a couple times, but it was basically contrived by both sides. By having an enemy to be feared, 
You have a population that lives in fear and a population subject to control. So what's happened since then? We went through the Korean conflict, the Vietnam War, the First and Second Gulf Wars, the Afghan War. We've pretty much bombed somebody every year from the end of World War II up to now. I think there might be one or two years in there that we didn't drop a bomb on somebody. Perpetual war. For eight freaking decades. Perpetual war. We're at a point now we've abandoned Afghanistan. Horribly, horribly executed abandonment. Getting out, I was all for. The way we did it was stupid beyond stupid. Iraq, we're out of there. We need a new war. We need a new enemy. Ukraine, Russia, not enough. We have to have a global hegemon to be standing up against. I told you guys weeks ago, Putin has put a peace deal on the table with Ukraine that's reasonable and it's the best Ukraine can hope for in the situation. Recognize Lungst and Dongst as independent republics. Recognize Crimea, which you might as well do because it's been in, in Russian control since 2014. It's not coming back. You're like China still claiming Taiwan as part of China, if you do otherwise. And declare neutrality that you will not join NATO. That's it. Now, do you know what our government said? When the, when the press finally confronted them with it over 20 days after it was offered. Well, we can't encourage that. Because there's a larger principle at play here than just Ukraine and Russia. Wait a minute. I thought we were supposed to risk World War III for Ukraine and Russia. I thought that's what I thought anybody that pointed that out was a stooge of Putin and a tool of Putin. That's what I thought. No. No, 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 no. No. No, this is larger principles at play here. So while all these people are suffering in Ukraine under this war, we're saying, uh, hold on, keep holding on, Zelensky, keep holding on, Zelensky, put your freaking tights on, Zelensky. Put your panties on, dance around on stage, and tell everybody to stay with it. You don't know what I'm saying there. You can look that up for yourself and find out what I'm talking about. We're encouraging the prolongation of a war that's already lost because it benefits us. And in the meantime, we want to instigate everything. We want to make that brick alliance rise against us. Brazil, Russia, India, China. Gee, when's the first time I mentioned that to you? That would have been 2008. The year I started this show, I told you about the implications of an economic, not a military, but an economic alliance between those actors. We want it to happen. We want an enemy. We always need a boogeyman. The entire United States operational program has been explained to you with a, t a kid's cartoon and comic book, G.I. Joe. They never catch Cobra Commander. He always gets away, and he's always there, and it's always the reason for everything that G.I. Joe team has to do because Cobra will take over the world if they don't. And if they ever did catch him, they'll find a new villain to take his place. That's it. That's why we want enemies around the world. It's not about what we want to do in the world. It's about what they want to do right here with you, and you are easy to control when you live in fear. And if you doubt that for a second, I just challenge you to crack a history book or two, really. With that, let's go up and hear about something totally different. You're going to start a business in a small-town area, and you're worried about your corporate structure. What do you do? John Pugliano. Hello, TSP. Today I have a really good question from Lucas, and Lucas's question requires... A detailed explanation, so I still have a backlog of questions. 
I promise to get to those in the near future, but for this episode, we're going to dedicate it just to Lucas's question. And Lucas is interested in starting a home inspection business, and he's going to start this out as a side hustle. And his question is basically, what type of corporate structure should he start out? Should he start out with a limited partnership, an LLC, an S-Corp, a C-Corp? And so he's wondering which of these structures would be most favorable for him from a tax perspective. He also mentions that he lives in a small rural area and there aren't a lot of business services, you know, tax preparation type companies in his area. So he's wondering how he should get started. Lucas, the way I would recommend that you look at the tax code is not trying to take advantage of some loopholes that maybe are set up there for, you know, some big corporate fat cat. But simply look at it as a means to support your business and as a means for you to keep as much of your hard-earned income as possible. Now, in your case, you're starting out as a side hustle. I'm assuming this is going to be a fairly small operation because you also mentioned you're in a rural area. So there's probably a limited customer base for you to work with there as well. So I guess a couple things here. I'd start out simple and my emphasis would not so much be on how much can you save in taxes, but how good of a handyman business can you buy that provides the products and services that your customer base is going to want and that you're able to produce. So as far as the corporate structure itself, as you consider what corporate structure you want to form for your business, remember that it's not locked in stone. On an annual basis, you can always refile with the IRS or your local state agencies to either increase or decrease the complexity of your organization. You can also at any time always just dissolve it and start something new. So don't get too caught up in the framework of what type of corporate structure you you should have. I would assume that in your case, starting out at the simplest level would be the best, and that's either just simply doing business as yourself, and that's literally just called DBA, doing business as, and in your case, it would be, you know, simple as doing business as Lucas. And when you file your personal income tax, you would just file your business income and expenses on the same tax form that you'd use, you know, for your federal or your state taxes. The only exception may be depending upon what kind of state you have and how they categorize your handyman business, you may or may not have to collect some type of sales tax. And that's a whole other different animal. But even with that, you don't necessarily have to have a corporation set up. You can simply do it as, you know, Lucas's handyman business. I don't know exactly what the statistics are, but DBA, doing business as, is a very common business structure. And I don't know exactly what the statistics are, but many, many, many small businesses simply operate that way. The one disadvantage of doing that is that you don't get any insulation between yourself and your business. And I'm talking about from a legal standpoint. And so if your business was to get sued or have some kind of legal action taken against it, since you're simply doing business as yourself, your personal assets wouldn't be separated from your business organization. And so that's why people use corporate structures and the simple of those uh, simply being an LLC, a limited liability company. By creating an LLC, you create somewhat of a corporate shell around your business that separates that from your personal activities. Now, it doesn't totally insulate you or protect all your assets, and it depends what type of civil or criminal complaint you know might be filed against your business to, to begin with as to how much protection it's going to offer your personal assets. But in your case, you just need to simply ask yourself, You know, do you have personal assets to protect? Some people do, some people don't. So that may not be an important factor for you. 
at least starting out. Again, the good news about that is that you can always convert your doing business as into an LLC. And if you eventually get a partner in your business, you could go from a single member LLC to a multi-member LLC. You could create a limited partnership. You know, down the road, if your business grew and you wanted to take advantage of paying yourself a dividend for a portion of your income, you could do that by moving into an S-corporation status. Or you can even, with the federal government, remain as a small, single-member, limited liability company and just file as an S-corp. In fact, that's something that the IRS allows LLCs to determine once a year for Form 2553, which allows a small business to determine whether they want to file as a single entity or as an S-corporation. Look into that Form 2553. The bottom line here, Lucas, is whether you're filing as doing business as or whether you're a limited liability company, all that income is going to pass on directly to you as an individual. And when you file your taxes, you're going to be able to claim your business expenses on Schedule C of the 1040 IRS form. I think you would be very wise to learn and study about that. Um, see if you have a tax professional that can work with you and help you understand how to set that up. You know, you mentioned you are in a rural area. You're starting out very small. To better understand the process and to educate yourself and also to be able to set your business up so it's most favorable for you, I would encourage you to, to learn about that 1040 form and the Schedule C. And probably one of the best ways to do that, other than just talking to a tax professional, is go out and buy a copy of TurboTax. And I think they probably even offer discounts on those for you know previous expired years. So even if you get yourself an old copy of it, you know, you're doing this as a learning exercise, so it doesn't really matter. But get a copy of TurboTax and start entering in the information just like you're running your business. And that will allow you to go through different what-if scenarios. TurboTax will step-by-step ask you the questions about legal, legitimate business expenses. And if you take the time to understand that and learn it and drill down, then you'll afford yourself a really good education about how to build and structure your business. And I think you can get a great education that way. Uh, I'm not saying that it's a substitute for hiring a professional. I would definitely encourage you to sit down with a professional, get a consultation, understand the basics of it, see what they can do for you. But you can also afford yourself a great deal of education by understanding and knowing how to use TurboTax. Well, hey, Lucas, thanks for that great question. You know, I usually get questions about investing and things in the stock market, and I absolutely love to answer those questions because that's what I'm all about. But I'm also a guy that started his own business, and I'm a strong, huge believer that people should start their own small businesses. And so I love getting those questions And I still consider that as an investment question because the primary place and the initial place that you should always start investing is by investing in yourself. And that's exactly what starting your own business is all about. So thanks for the questions. Until the next time, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth and the Wealthsteading Podcast. That's pretty much exact op, uh, uh, the exact uh, way I would respond to that as well. Like, There's always an it depends in tax attorney, CPA type Uh, disclaimer when I talk about this, but again, when you're starting a brand new business and you don't have that much revenue, uh, you a lot of times are simplifying things in your life by actually just being a sole proprietorship. That's what when you talk about doing a DBA, that's what you are, your sole proprietorship uh, and, and doing a DBA. You can even use a company name. 
So you can be Lucas whatever, and you can do DBA, you know, handyman, you know, insert name handyman, you know, uh, operations or something like that. And yeah, the about the only real advantage to the S corp over the LLC for a, a small business like this is the ability to have the earnings taxed within the corporation and only pay tax on money that you pay out to yourself as payroll and or distributions. And then that can allow you to save some significant uh, taxes on, um, on, on your, like your Social Security side of things, the, those taxes and matching your own. But until you have sufficient revenue to make that worth doing, a sole proprietorship is fine. And that's where most people need to begin And then you can move it under some form of corporate or limited liability structure in time. Like, like John said about the only issue there is protection of your assets from your business activities. But there's something called piercing the corporate veil and it's getting easier and easier for it to be done. And I'll tell you, you might want to check with your local jurisdiction. The most likely lawsuit you're going to have is a small claims court lawsuit. Uh, not some big giant lawsuit. Somebody's soon to sue you for 250 bucks because you broke a flower pot or something stupid like that. And the problem in some jurisdictions, this is a county level thing generally, and you need to check with your county. I learned this the hard way in Denton County. I had somebody sue me for a couple hundred dollars, small claims court. She was wrong. It pissed me off. I was willing to take a day off and go up there and slam dunk her in the courtroom. But, you know, my partner being smart, uh, Neil, at the time, he uh, he ran it by our lawyer, Jeff, because he's on retainer, so a phone call is always free. And Jeff said, the problem you have is you are a company. You are a corporation. And in Denton County, Texas, you cannot represent yourself as a corporation in small claims court. You have to have an attorney. And an attorney is going to cost you more than this person's asking for. And so we paid, and I'm going to use the term, the bitch, who was a lying bitch, uh, the money, and and we had to. We had no choice. And ironically, this person was stupid enough, they put me down as a job reference about six months later. You can figure out what happened with that. Uh, but karma is a bitch, too. But just, like, there are certain things that you have to do when you go into a corporate structure that you, you don't really have to do as a sole proprietorship. And going into a corporate structure doesn't really move a lot of things into the expense column, you can't move into the expense column with a, with a sole proprietorship. Most people will be better off, leave that decision until you actually establish the enterprise. Unless you've done it before and you know what you're doing and you have a reason you're doing it going in. And the idea of running an LLC, which is the simplest thing to run, but being able to be taxed as an S-corp is, is absolutely where most people in this situation probably need to end up. With that, let's talk about something totally different. We're going to grow a food forest where it's really, really wet, like too wet, like clay soil, like standing water in the winter wet. Hi, Jeff Lawton here coming to you from Australia. And I have a question here about someone who has a 15-tree um, small orchard and wants to convert it to a food forest and expand it into a field, about two-acre field, and it has really soggy ground, um, soggy and wet in winter and then dries out in summer. But um, there's about two foot of topsoil, then it goes into clay, and if you dig a hole in winter, it fills up with water. Um, so in this situation, you've got kind of ideal uh, winter chinampas, where if you dig uh, your swales, they turn into canals, um, and um, they can be used for some kind of aquaculture. 
um, and it may retain over summer. But what you can actually do is you can dig swales and go a little bit deeper, put your topsoil to one side, um, pile up uh, your clay and topsoil in the mounds, trying to get the clay at the bottom, um, and then pile up so you've increased the height of uh, the topsoil and you've made mounds which mean that you've got well-drained conditions to grow your fruit trees and um, you've got canals which can be for aquatic crops. Now, it depends how well they stay wet over summer, but often they'll still stay damp if they're totally flooded in winter. There'll often be damp patches in summer or damp strips, or they may well be see, deep enough for small fish and aquatic crops. Now, there is ways to make it wider and shallower, extending the amount of topsoil you extract, so raising the mound higher so you get a better fruit tree condition. Um, but there's always a potential that this could end up being good for aquatic crops or even aquaculture of some type, shallow, shallow canal aquaculture, which can be very, very productive. And the best thing to do is test it first and uh, see how it works. But it is much easier to raise the soil level through extracting your topsoil um, than it is to sort of drain it off and lose the potential of the aquaculture that could be possible. Now, with that sort of shallow, um, shallow water aquaculture, you can have incredibly good duck systems. Um, ducks will almost feed themselves in those um, moderated um, swamp systems where you deepen the water and raise the height of the land. Um, instead of it being marshy, you've got uh, more intense water and more intense mounding. You get better growing conditions on the mounds. But you also kind of end up with a self-foraging system for ducks, which help fertilize your orchard. So there you go. My one addition to this, uh, to help lower water tables here, two acres is pretty big, and you got clay. I'd put some ponds in, 10th acre to 20th of an acre, you know, one-tenth or two-tenth acre, couple of them, and then you have a place for the water to go. That would be something I would at least consider. The other thing I would consider, depending on whether or not this makes sense, Trees themselves are hydraulic pumps. And if we take some trees toward the upgrade side that do well with wet feet, that grow big and fast rapidly in these wet environments, they'll take a lot of the moisture up into them, something like cypress. Now remember, I just talked about cypress recently on air. Cypress is, they call it a bald cypress or knob cypress because it will send up roots, knobs, that will come up around the tree as breather caps. And so if you've ever seen cypress and they have these big stumps sticking up foot or more out of the ground sometimes, that's what they do. So it's big, beautiful trees, and if you harvest some long-term, gorgeous timber. But you do need to be prepared to deal with those knobs and at least you know scout for them before you run through there with a lawn tractor or something like that because they will tear a blade right off especially if your grasses come up and they've come up and you don't catch them. So you have to pay attention for that. There are other trees that you might consider that would grow fast and rapidly and wouldn't have much problem with this, again, toward the upgrade side of this system if it works. Like it doesn't shade out everything else you're trying to do. I mean, willow 
loves wet soil. So this would be a great place to grow fodder willow like hybrid willow or just beautiful willows like weeping willow. So we can do some things. And then as we plant the rest of our trees into that forest system, a lot of that wetness will be somewhat mitigated because those trees are going, again, act as pumps. They're also going to infiltrate deep into the clay. They're going to open things up, and they're going to allow more to go in. And the other thing you can look at is ripping the bottom of your swales. I've seen Jeff do that as well. It depends on the scale of the, the project. This is one you might want to get somebody like a Nick Ferguson involved with. You know, I say this all the time, but if you can find a good permaculture design consultant, especially when you're doing a project over an acre, I guarantee you, if that person charges you three grand, you'll save more than that in the totality of the ownership of the system. And in ten years, if you could go back and erase some of your mistakes for three thousand dollars, you'd go out and you'd you'd sell blood till you could afford to pay it. Uh, just just some advice there. Next up, uh, if you're going to buy a used generator, what should you be looking at? Let's hear from Tim Toolman Cook on this one. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back to answer another question for the expert council, so let's dive right in. This week's question comes from Rob over on Instagram, and he says, I'm seeing a lot of used generators online recently. What are some things to look out for when buying a used generator so that I don't get taken advantage of? Well, I thought I'd put together a bunch of questions I ask myself or questions that you can ask the person you're buying from to give you an idea of what to look for in a used generator. And these kind of questions that you can ask will work for basically any type of used gas-powered equipment. So the first three questions to ask yourself before you even message the potential person that's selling it to you. Number one, is it a good deal? So look at comparable prices on Facebook, Craigslist, or Kijiji in Canada and see what they're selling for. You know, is it at least half the price of a new one? Or, you know, what I've run into sometimes is, is it just too good of a deal, too good to be true? So yeah, number one, is it a good deal? And number two, can I get a new comparable generator for close to the same price? So if the generator's $500, is there a lesser brand that I can buy brand new for the same price? Or should I save just a bit longer and buy the brand new generator that will come with a factory warranty? Something to think about. Number three, what brand is it? Uh, you know, the top two brands in my mind tend to be Honda and Generac. And those hold the resale value and hold up you know, down the road, quality-wise, a lot better. And then if you want to go just down one tier from that, some of the other ones are Westinghouse, Champion, Furman, Duramax, and Predator. So those are some brands to look at. You know, if if it's a complete generic brand you've never heard of, it might be a chance you don't want to necessarily go down that road. Now, five questions to ask the potential person before you even meet up. Number one, how old is it? Can they tell you exactly when they bought it? Are they the first owner? You know, were there ever any recalls on it and were they done? And depending on how old it is, can you even get replacement parts anymore? Uh, number five, ask them how many hours of runtime is on it. You know, they can look on the gauge. There's either a manual gauge or a digital gauge. And they should, you know, 
The big thing is most people have no sweet clue how many hours they ran it. And even if they had to make an educated guess, they'd probably be wrong. So one good thing is to only buy a used generator if it has an hour gauge on it so that you know exactly whether the thing was, you know, put away, used really hard, or if it was just used slightly. Uh, number six, what was it used for? Home use versus oil patch use is a whole different ball game. You know, I know when I worked in the oil patch, those things would get thrown in the back of the truck. They'd get dust and dirt and oil put on them. They'd never be clean, never be serviced. But then a lot of times, if they were home use, they sit in the garage, they're babied, they're run every so often. You know, I would honestly, unless you can get a killer deal on something, I would stay away from any used generators that had been used in the trades. You know, anything that's been used for outdoor work. Because you just don't know how horribly it's been abused how hard it's been worked, and if it was used in the trades, there's a good chance it's been run a lot. Uh, number seven, where's it been stored? You know, was it kept on the back of a truck outdoors year-round, or did they keep it in a garage under a tarp and keep it clean? Number eight, why are they replacing the generator? And this is the question I love to ask people when I'm buying something used, because this is where you can get a lot of information. If they're honest, it's going to tell you a lot. If they say it's getting old and they feel like we should replace it before it breaks down, maybe you want to stay away from it. But if they say something like, hey, we need something bigger or smaller or easier to move around or something that uses a different fuel, then that's a whole different ballgame. That means they're replacing a perfectly good generator for some kind of different circumstances. But if they're replacing it because they're worried it's getting, it's pretty much worn out, stay away from it. And then two questions to kind of ask before you actually hand any money over. How does it look physically? Use your senses, sight, sound, and smell. Sight. Look the Jenny over. Open the air filter up. Is it dirty? Check for bad dents in the tank or the frame. Pull the dipstick and see if the oil is dark or burnt. Then smell the oil. Does it smell burnt or worse? Does it smell gassy? Open the fuel tank. Smell the, the gas in there. Does it smell skunky? And then sound. Let it run and listen. Do you hear any weird noises, any rattles, any vibrations, or worse than that, how about any metal-on-metal contact? Any of those? (laughs) You know. And then number 10, does it run? Now, this isn't necessarily a deal-breaker, but it could be. Uh, You need to find out why it doesn't run. If the thing ran right up until the minute they put it away, there's a good chance you're just dealing with bad gas. But if it, you know, if they tell you that it blew out white or, you know, some kind of dark colored smoke and then seized up hard, stay away from it. But obviously, if you're buying something used, check it out and make sure it's going to run. I hope that helps. I went over that list pretty quick. I wanted to get as much information in there as I could. If you want to follow up with me, absolutely. If you guys have more questions for me, send them to Jack. I'd love to answer as many as I can for the expert council. I love doing this for you guys. And if you want to know more about me, the easiest way is to get my link and go over to the YouTube channel on Thursday or Sunday evenings at 7 p.m. Mountain Time when we do the live stream, the workshop podcast. Thursday night is repairedness, the art of home maintenance when help isn't around the corner. And Sunday evening tends to be an interview show with people in the preparedness fields, entrepreneurship fields, handyman fields, just somewhere where we can learn from an expert in the field ask questions, and interact as a community. All right, guys, that's it for me this week. As always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. So Tim did hit my one ratio there. If I can't save about half 
depending on what we're talking about, right, on size and capacity and expense. But, you know, your, your consumer cost generator, two grand and under, if I can't save about half, I'm probably going to buy a new generator. So he said that right at the beginning, 50%. And that's kind of my bogey on that. Then I'll tell you what you're looking for, what you're really looking for. What I call the over-organized, hypochondriac, old man generator or anything. I bought a boat a few years ago. It was exactly in that form. You're looking for the old man that it might have been used a lot, might not have been used a lot, but it's a guy that you know he changes the oil every year even if he didn't use it that year. He, he starts it up. He's obsessive. He takes care of everything. And when you look at equipment that's been maintained that way, you know it. You can tell. You'll see it. That's the guy you want to buy from. And the, the reason that guy's going to give you, I'm moving in with my kids. I'm moving across the country. I'm retiring. That is, it. when you find that, and it's hard to do, but in all used items, when you can find that, you found one that's probably worth, you know, 60 to 70% even sometimes, depending on what we're talking about, of retail on a new one. And I would say not retail, street retail. What does it normally sell for? This is why you say, well, what if I get 30% off? It, it, unless it's a very specific thing, like a Honda EU2000 or something like that. Almost all these generators go on sale. That's why I bring them around from time to time when they go on sale. You put a price watch on them. Most of them, you'll get that 20% off if you don't need it today, especially those of you you're buying like your second generator. You have that, that generator you really want, look for it used you know, in that 50% off range, and in the sale price range, look for it at a 20% discount and, and run price watches and, and, and keep an eye out, and sooner or later, it should come up. The thing is, all the stuff I just said is so true two years ago and so less true today about getting that discount. But I would, you know, I would, I'd look for the, you're looking for the guy that's in the box. He bought it because he became a prepper and never did anything. That's a, there's a lot of that. Divorces, like I got all this stuff and I was all ready and my wife and I are getting split up and I need to get rid of it. Those are good th things like that if they're telling the truth. When somebody says it's never even been used and it's in the box and the box is clean, it probably is true. When they say it's never been used and it smells funny, and it's got some like dry rot on the rubber hosing, and it's got some marks on it and stuff, it's probably a lie. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and do another one. This one on Potbelly Pigs for me. Hey there, everybody. Darby Simpson of Grass-Fed Life. Back to answer another question that came in via email, this time from John, coming from the Gulf Coast in Mississippi. And John wants to know, do you have any important tips or must-dos for someone wanting to raise meat pigs on small property? And, yeah, John, I've got a lot of thoughts. Let's get into uh, some of the particulars you sent in in your email. As always, context is king. We're getting uh, interested in raising a few pigs for personal consumption, doing some research on YouTube. I'm interested in maybe starting off with potbelly pigs. They're smaller. They'd be better for me and my wife to manage processing. I've also seen where they take seven months to harvest. They don't need as much food. They don't root up the place as bad, in air quotes. I'm thinking of starting off very small with just two. Obviously, we can't pasture them on our small property, so a comfortable pen next to the chicken run will have to do. After raising them out, we will decide if it's something we want to continue doing. If so, we would like to get a male and two females as breeders so we can have a nice steady supply of pork on the homestead. My background is I'm a chef at a very successful restaurant, Gulf Coast of Mississippi. We have a small backyard homestead, 0.8 acres. 
Uh, you're already raising a lot of food. That's awesome, John. And you want to add some protein to go along with your chickens and your eggs. Um, okay, so uh, to answer your questions that you list here, do you have anything you feel we need to know? Um, yes, you do not have enough property to breed. Absolutely, you do not have enough property to breed. And it is very, very expensive to maintain uh, a boar and a couple of sows. You'd also have way more piglets than you could possibly hope to raise. And uh, I just don't think that's a good idea. I think if this is something you want to do, you need to find a good, steady supply of feeder pigs that you can use on your homestead. So that's that's the first thing. Um, I, you've got some other questions here that I think are going to hit quite a few of the highlights. Uh, are there medications that should be done? We prefer to avoid that altogether. Uh, the short answer is no, there really aren't any medications that you should do preemptively, particularly where you're at. If you'll do this in the warmer months and kind of stay away from winter, You should be just fine. The thing that I'll mention is, you know, cold and wet are your enemy, and uh, pigs, just like us, are very susceptible to respiratory infections. And um, if if they get one, if they get a really bad respiratory infection, you do need to treat them with antibiotics, most likely. Uh, it will probably turn into mon to, to pneumonia, and they'll slowly die. It's not a fun process. So... If they get sick and they remain sick for a few days, you're going to want to hit them with something. Uh, the only other thing would be, uh, in conjunction with your next question, what's your opinion on castration of male piglets? You absolutely 100% need to do it infinity. Anyone who tells you it doesn't matter or that it does not affect the taste and quality of the meat is wrong. They don't know what they're talking about. Boar taint absolutely exists. It will make the meat untenable at some point, and you should castrate. Along with that, something you want to be careful of is tetanus. Lives in the dirt. Um, they could pick up tetanus, so you might want to hit them with a tetanus shot. I don't think that's a must, just something you should be aware of. What are your thoughts on potbelly pigs instead of a full-size breed? I've never raised potbelly pigs. I mean, I you know, you're kind of talking about something that's more in line with like a cooney cooney or an American guinea hog. Um, I I don't I don't know. I just don't know. Now, 0.8 acres would be enough for one or two smaller framed regular pigs. Um, you, certainly, you wouldn't want to get you know some ginormous breed like a large black or a full-size tamworth or anything like that but um you know I, i mean maybe try it go for it if it doesn't work it's it's two pigs which by the way i think it's a perfect number to start with two um you know give it a shot if you don't care for it try a different breed the next go around that's another reason not to buy breeding stock Even if you did have the space, you wouldn't want to do that until A, you knew what you were doing, and B, you knew what breed you really wanted, which typically takes a few cycles for people to figure out. Um, other than fencing, shelter, food and waters, or anything else they need. They need to be dry. They need to be able to get in something, um, some kind of shelter to get in out of the rain, to get in out of the sun. Um, they really need 
a shady spot. You mentioned putting a fixed pin next to your chicken run. <sighs> I'm not a fan. I'm just being honest. Uh, it's going to stink. Uh, 0.8 acres. I, I, I don't know if you live like in what would considered to, to be a uh, semi-rural area where you've got neighbors. Uh, they're going to smell it if you've got a neighbor nearby. They really need to be rotated. Otherwise, you're going to have a muddy mess, especially during your rainy season, and it's it's going to stink. Um, I would tell you to figure out some means of moving them around some. Um, even if maybe they you know kind of tear up an area and it's, it's a little bit worse than you'd like, but you've got a, a few areas you can rotate them through. Sew behind them, try to get some more stuff to grow. You know, do whatever you can. You can wring their noses. I, I know that's almost heretical in regenerative ag circles. I'm I'm not necessarily opposed to it, especially in a situation like this. Um, it, it will stop them from rooting up quite so badly. Uh, it'll save a lot of your your grasses and perennials that you have growing out there keep them from destroying it as will keeping them moving and and frankly with two smaller pot bellies i i think you'd be surprised at how small the space they would have to have and everybody's going to be happier if you can rotate they're going to be happier you're going to be happier and your neighbors are going to be happier so that's probably my my single biggest takeaway um Again, do this in the warm season. Do not start out doing this in the, the whatever your cold season is. I mean, the Gulf Coast of Mississippi is not exactly cold. Temperature-wise, I think almost any time of year you're going to be okay, except for deep winter. Uh, but I'd tell you to stay away from the rainy season. Um, butchering, you're going to butcher at home. You know, I, I'm not a guy to to tell you about you know how to butcher pigs. Uh, we happily pay a processor. To do that. Um, now, if this were chickens, you know, grass fed life does offer a, a, a chicken butchering course, which is just fantastic. Um, I tell you, I, I gotta be honest with you here. This is not a pushy sales spiel, especially for 39 bucks, but we have a homestead pig course for $39 that's hours long that's gonna pay you back tenfold, easily, twentyfold. In terms of saving you money, time, stress, it's going to answer a lot of these questions about, you know, how to go about raising pigs. There's really no profit and loss in that homesteading course. That's why it's so inexpensive, but it does give you the nuts and bolts of raising pigs. A lot of the things I just talked about, but with a lot of examples, photographs, videos, etc. cetera. Uh, I think that that would be very worthwhile for you and your wife to watch. And I think if you buy that, and you spend $39 and you say, you know what? I think this has taught us we don't want to raise pigs. It's $39 well spent because pigs are work. Um, they are pigs. They are pig-headed. Trust me, that name is well-deserved. Uh, it's there for a reason. So, John, those are really my, my big thoughts. Um, and I know you mentioned, too, about feeding them. You can't pasture them completely. You really can't pasture any pig completely. It's really, really difficult. Um, in, in a pristine circumstance, yeah, maybe, but, um, anything you can feed them from your garden, you said you've got a lot of extra food that you're raising that you don't consume, 
feed it to the pigs. You know, give them your scraps and, and leftovers. You you can, uh, um, you know, really cut down on the feed bill that way. It doesn't have to be a super grain-intensive operation. Follow up with me if you do this. Let me know how it works out. I'm curious. Uh, I've just never heard anybody talking about raising pot-belly pigs for meat. They're usually a pet. So that's uh, that's what I got for you, John. I hope you find this helpful. Uh, thanks for sending this in. If you would like one of your questions answered in 10 minutes or less, shoot it to me, Darby at grassfedlife.co, and I'll be happy to take it on in one of these short segments. Thanks a lot. Hope you enjoyed this, and good luck with your uh, little operation, John. So let me throw a few things at you as well that may be somewhat discouraging and some that may be somewhat encouraging. And I don't mean to discourage anybody about something they want to try. And I'm with Darby. If you want to try it, you try it. If it doesn't work out, you eat a couple pigs. And there's worse things in the world than to have to eat a couple pigs that you would have done a different way had you had a different way to do it. So I want to start out with pot pigs as meat pigs. They do not get as big as guinea hogs, and they certainly don't get that big in seven months. Um, seven months is a general finish-out weight for you know what commonly is referred to as pink pigs, even when they ain't pink. Just your regular, plain old pig from the time you get a piglet that can be on its own till you can take it to market is about seven months. Um, they're more in the one to one-and-a-half-year range to do this to a size where they're worth harvesting before they get to a point where if they get any bigger, you have a negative return on your yield versus your inputs. They are delicious, and, and they came to North America, they came through Canada, but they came to North America as pets. And pigs are actually very affable animals if they're, uh, you know, they get, if they get, you know, they get raised alongside human beings and they see human beings the right way, they're, they're, they act a lot like a dog. And it makes it a bit hard when you, when you raise a pig uh, in an environment like that sometimes to do the deed when the deed needs doing. So that's something else to be aware of. And when you have one or two animals, they become much more of an individual personality that you recognize than when you have 20 of them moving around in a paddock. Now they're just a pain in the ass that you have to move around. When you have two that sit in a, co- a cage and they, come, they look at you every day and get happy when you come out there and you can pet them behind the ear, you may have some regrets. That's just something to be aware of. But they are delicious and they were, the breed is meant to be eaten. They come from Vietnam. And the way they're handled in Vietnam, they run free like like dogs without fences. And they come home every night, and they were made to be smaller, so they were less dangerous and easier to handle. And they required less food in addition to what they could forage. And they are delicious. They're also about half fat. So whatever your yield is, if, it, if you really you know use everything from 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 the squeak to the tail, uh, about half of it's lard. They're very, very, very fatty and very much that outside lard fat. So if that's good for you, if you want that, then that's great. But understand that if you had a 100-pound yield off of a, a, a pig, you're going to have 50 pounds of meat and 50 pounds of lard. I mean, and that's about, you can just about bet on that, which, again, that may not be bad. But it's, it's what you're looking at here. Um, if you're going to do... The, I'm going to have kind of the pig pen, you know, contained area instead of rotating them somehow, like Darby said. The way this was done with much larger pigs in, in England during World War II was with a pig pen, and you can do this. They generally had concrete floors with good drainage, though. And then that means you're shoveling out pig muck with a good source of mixed carbon 
at least every other day. And they will learn, or they you don't have to teach them. They're going to pick a place that they're going to poo. And they're not going to poo where they lay. That's one good thing about pigs. So you can put mulch where their poo area is, almost like litter training a cat, but it's going to add up really quick. I want you to think about pig poo differently than you think about cow poo or duck shit or anything else like that. It's dog. When you look at a pig take a dump, it looks like a dog took a dump. And so you're dealing with a dog in a kennel as far as a waste stream is how is the way to think about it. So do you really want to do that? So an alternative, if you just want meat. Now, maybe if you love pork and you don't like rabbit, but if you want meat, you know, two to four does and a, a, a male rabbit, a buck rabbit, and you can produce somewhere between three and 600 pounds of meat a year, which is more than you're going to get off two potbelly pigs. You're not going to get the fat yield, but I think you'll find if you're doing rabbits for meat bunnies, you get enough of them at a time that you don't form the attachment A little bit easier to do the deed. Very, very easy. Very, very quick to process once you get good at it. Or quail. Quail, quiet, no problem, easy to do. I don't want to dissuade you. I'm just saying, like, make sure if the goal is protein production that you're thinking about it the right way. And so it's not, I'm only doing pigs because that's the only protein thing that will work here. If you want to try it, try it. Just, you know, think about what you're getting into. And, again, if you're going to, If you're going to pen them up, I, I would encourage you to go and look up on YouTube uh, Wartime Farm. And it's about the middle of that series. I think it's a 10-part series. about the middle of that series where they go through how they raised pigs. And it was like a pig club. And you got to keep half the pig you raised between you and the family that raised it with all the scraps and stuff they brought to the pigs. And the other half went to the market to be sold. You didn't get paid for it. It went into the market for rations during the war. And look at the way they did that. And that was doable but it requires an ongoing commitment to deal with the waste stream. Or like Darby said, you have a giant pile of muddy pig poo, which is a giant pile of muddy dog poo. That's the way to think about it. With that, let's talk about another one here. Uh, let's hear about farm vehicles from uh, Derek Bonpietro. Hey, TSP listeners. Derek here from AffordableDCGenerators.com. I've got a question from, well, he's in France, so I'm guessing it's not Jan. It's probably Jean, pardon my French. I took Spanish in high school, so I apologize for any mispronunciation there of your name. But he's got a great question on vehicle choices for a farm or homestead. So question is, what would be the best choice for a small farm, small farm vehicle? I know, I know, it depends. <laughs> awesome. So you're already one step ahead of me. Details, I have a small 10-acre farm in France, mostly pasture and partly quite steep, up to 22%. It's always a lot to move and haul on the farm, and I've been thinking of investing in a vehicle to help me out as I'm not getting any younger. I'm considering an ATV or small four-wheel drive car. My budget is limited to $5,000 US dollars or euros. ATV, easy to maneuver, low ground pressure, fairly high new price for quality brands, has cheaper Asian options, too low quality. Car type, Dacia Duster, Suzuki Jimny, Mitsubishi Pajero. <laughs> You're recommending vehicles. I don't think a lot of those are in U.S. markets, but there are a lot of U.S. counterparts to those. Uh, heavier, stronger, can serve as extra car function stacking. I'm very interested to hear your thoughts on this subject. Other alternatives? I'm not a mechanic, so I need something durable and easy to man maintain. Any and all advice would be much appreciated. Best, John C. Uh, I've got some other notes down here. Many thanks for an awesome show that inspires, teaches, and keeps me company working on the farm. Probably for Jack. 
Jean C. is an old fart Swede in France, member since the bacon campaign, and still eat my weekly ration. Thumbs up. <laughs> All right. Uh, so this is a great question, and you're basically, the biggest determining factor is going to be what you need it for and the budget. So 5000 US dollar or euro um, right now isn't buying a lot, unfortunately, uh, whether you're looking for a tractor, four-wheel drive vehicle, ATV, side-by-side, -side, UTV. I don't know what the European equivalent or naming would that be. It's basically like an oversized ATV where you can sit in it and it probably has a utility bed. Um, so our nomenclature might be different from U.S. to, to Europe, but $5,000 is not buying you a lot these days, unfortunately. The other big thing is when you're running the farm, are we talking about just basically hauling like utility trailer, being able to get out to your pasture or field or up, you know, like you said, a steep grade because you're just moving stuff around. You need to be able to put stuff in the bed and move it around on the farm. Uh, the, a four wheel drive truck would be a great choice. And so a Suzuki Jimny in the U.S., that would be like a Suzuki Samurai, which was back in the 80s and 90s. Uh, a Dacia Duster, I'm not sure what that is, or Mitsubishi Pajero, that's basically Mitsubishi SUV, which would be slightly bigger than the Samurai would be. Uh, very limited in the U.S., but, you know, a lot of these are way more common where you are. But those are great choices. Uh, if you're looking for an SUV or something with a removable top, you can throw stuff in the back or pickup truck version. Uh, you can also be looking at a Japanese K-truck or key truck, and those are actually, believe it or not, slightly smaller than a Samurai. And those can come with a pickup bed that has, you know, fold-down sides or possibly even a dump bed. And the utility on those are through the roof, even though they are very small. You're talking about, like, a tractor without the tractor. You know, it's an SUV, but it's it's very utilitarian. Four-wheel drive, low range, typically. And some of them even come with power steering and air conditioning. Those are going to be cheaper than probably the normal SUV variant. You know, the downside, they're very small, so if you're a big guy... Uh, that's probably not going to work for you, but I'd say if you're under six feet tall, you probably will fit in that, no problem. Those are probably going to be in like the four to $8,000 range, but to get them to where you are, you know, you're talking about like import tariffs and shipping, stuff like that, that could potentially drive the price up even further. But sometimes you can find them where they've already been brought into the country, somebody's used them, and now they're looking to offload it. That might be your score. You're going to be able to throw stuff in the back of it. You're going to be able to have a hitch on it and hook up to a trailer move stuff around, you know, hills, mud, stuff like that. Not a problem if you get it equipped with the right tires. So that's probably going to be the most, most multi-purpose tool you're going to have. So an ATV and a side or side-by-side, -side, I just think price point, you're probably not going to touch them unless you get an old pile of junk, and then what's the point of it? You know, $5,000 doesn't buy you a lot of ATV. I would probably avoid getting a cheaper quality, like basically when you say Asian now, that's, that's a big territory. So you're looking at stuff made by like Yamaha, Suzuki, Honda. Those are reputable manufacturers that have a long history of making good quality stuff. When you're starting to talk about a, I hate to say it, but a Chinese level quality, like a Kimco, you know, you're, you're basically buying a knockoff. Uh, when I say Asian, I, I mean Japanese. You're buying a knockoff Japanese product. And the quality on those are really terrible. And you're not going to find a lot of people that want to work on those things. Parts availability is very scarce unless you find the right source, which might be like eBay or something like that. But unless you find somebody that deals those parts, they're going to be difficult to find regardless of where you are in the world compared to like something made by Suzuki, which everybody knows that name. 
And from what I've seen, honestly, they're, they're just junk. They don't, they don't hold up whatsoever. So I'd probably avoid that. That's not an investment. When you buy something that's good quality, yeah, sure, maybe the value of it is going down. But if you buy something that's a good quality, it's going to, it's going to go down, but then it's going to flatten out and you're going to get your usage out of it. And if you buy it right, you're probably going to be able to sell it for pretty close to what you bought it for unless you just absolutely beat it up. Uh, when you buy something like a Kimco, a cheap quality, you're going to pay the money for it and it's not going to be worth anything immediately because the market's not there, the resale's not there, and they don't hold up. So you're starting off with something that's new and immediately is going to turn into a pile of junk because they just don't hold up. So it's not an investment at that point. You're actually kind of throwing your money away. So I would avoid those. The key trucks, the micro trucks, you know, that may buy Honda and Toyota and stuff like that. Sure, you might lose a grand or two if you've owned it for a couple of years, but those seem to be holding relatively flat. What you're paying for them is typically what you're going to be selling them for, or you may be going to take a little bit of a hit, but you're going to own it for a couple of years and got some use out of it. And honestly, when they're in good shape, there's again, there's not a lot to fail. You know, They're usually made in the 80s or 90s, and they're very basic vehicles to begin with. So anybody that can work on a Japanese vehicle should be able to work on one of those as long as they're comfortable with it. So it shouldn't be like having to find a needle in a haystack when you try to find a mechanic. Now, when you're, say, working on the farm, if that involves, you know, pulling a, a pallet of material off of a truck, a delivery truck, or needing a bucket to scoop up material and move it somewhere on the farm, or an implement to dig a hole to excavate, none of those vehicles, ATV side-by-side, micro-truck, small SUV, none of those are going to do the job, unfortunately. Uh, so you're going to be looking at a tractor. So if if any of that type of work is in your future or what you're doing right now, you got to go with a tractor. There's really no way around it or a skid steer, but you're 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 probably talking ten thousand dollars to start minimum for something like that. So I think your budget wise probably going to eliminate it. But if you need it, honestly, it's probably worth the money to have something like that. If not, I personally, I'd probably go with the Japanese micro truck, the key truck. I would look at one of those because I think it fits your price point and your usage. As long as you don't have to do anything like scooping, digging, or moving pallets, you should be okay. All right. Thank you very much for the question. Take care, guys. So I want to give a bit of a simplified view of this. So I own about three acres, and I do the majority of my work on about two of it. Occasionally, I'm over on, on the West Pasture. That's an extra acre. I have a small lawn tractor and a really kind of, the trailer exceeds the capacity of the tractor. If I actually load the trailer to the capacity the trailer is capable of carrying, it'll lift the ass end of the lawn tractor off the ground. We accidentally did that once. All right, so it's that trailer will handle anything the tractor can handle and then some. And the only reason I don't have a UTV is... The size property I have, it's just not worth the investment. If I had a 10-ish acre property, I would probably spend the money to buy a new problem-free UTV somewhere in the seven dollars to $8,000 range. Now, I don't know how prices translate over into France, but there's a nice little UTV sitting right out front of my tractor supply right now for $7,800. I know that's $2,800 more than you want to spend, but let's say you buy a $5,000 used one, the odds that you're not going to put another three grand into it over the next several years in things that it's going to need are pretty low. 
They're very robust machines, and if they're taken care of, they last a long time. Used ones are generally ones that were beaten to shit, and they start to have issues, and the guy makes a calculation, I'm better dumping this and buying a new one than I am keeping it, kind of like the conversation earlier about generators. When you buy a used UTV, you're almost inevitably buying somebody's problem. So that would be one way to skin this. The other way would be one of these small sort of like crossover SUV, older kind of beat beat down ones, like especially if it's still roadworthy, where I can put tags on it if I want to, and if I need to use it on the road, even as a backup vehicle, I can. That gives it a little bit more utility, and again, now I'm willing to put a little bit more money into it. But honest to God, if I had a 10-acre property, that UTV sit down in front of a tractor supply, unless I could find a, a, a place I could do much better, or just a better quality, it's probably what I would do. That's probably what I would do. And you also might want to look at one of the really kind of small front-end loaders. Now, you're looking at like twelve dollars to $16,000 there, but you you have more utility depending on what you're doing because you can dig. You know, Usually you're talking about something like a third-yard bucket, uh, spreading mulches and stuff like that, but that's that's way outside of your price range. But if, if you can stretch two to 3000 more, the kind of entry-level, brand-new, warranty-covered, UTVs that are available, they're they're worth the extra money versus buying somebody's problem, in my opinion. Now, let's talk about my quote of the day today. I, I was thinking about how do I keep my commitment to mostly talk about solutions this week other than where I'm commenting on expert counsel people and also kind of hit on where we are in the world today as far as all the problems we have and what we need to be doing about it. And I also have been doing so much work getting this uh, aquatics course developed. I'm thinking about talking about water or what have you uh, and how water systems can make us self-sufficient. I guess I have to make some quotes because there's not a lot of great ones out there about that. But as I was trying to figure out my segment today, I started thinking about some of my favorite things that Bill Mollison ever said. And I remembered this one, so I, I couldn't remember it exactly, so I looked it up and found it. And here it is again. I teach self-reliance, the world's most subversive practice. I teach people how to grow their own food, which is shockingly subversive. So yes, it's seditious, but it's peaceful sedition. It's completely true, but I want you to think about why it's true. Why would it be seditious to become self-reliant and self-sufficient? And not just self-reliant, self-sufficient as yourself, your family, and your homestead, but actually to build beachheads of self-reliance throughout your country, specifically, though, for you in your general area. When you find someone who is selling local food, who you know is producing it locally, and you start doing business with them, you now have closed a loop. Money that was, when you go down to the grocery store and you buy steaks and chops or lettuce and spinach or whatever, Inevitably, that money came from somewhere else, even if it's produced in your state. Like, if you go buy salad greens in Texas at the grocery store, odds are it was produced in West Texas, grown in a greenhouse. So some money goes to West Texas, grown in a greenhouse. But there's a lot of money that goes outside of the state because of the transportation and, and all of the things that go into moving it and putting it on the shelves and maintaining it and the accounting processes and all the shit. There's a massive amount of overhead in that product. And even if you're paying the same price, if you're paying it locally, it stays local. You have less entropy. We have to start thinking of our money as energy because that's what it is. It's an embodiment of energy. 
And the embodiment of energy that we have in the U.S. dollar is a, is a leaky battery. That's what inflation is. Think of the dollar as a battery, and inflation is, is, is the natural loss of storage capacity in the battery over time. And as soon as you understand that, you understand how shockingly subversive self-reliance is because it mitigates that. It mitigates that. And the more you can do for yourself or acquire locally from people who are doing it locally and are relying as little as possible on outside systems for what they need, the more you reduce that entropy. But it's bigger than that's just the beginning of it. Remember my discussion during Ron Paul's segment? I was specifically talking about Dan McAdams and how many enemies are we going to create? And I said they need an enemy because that puts us in a state of fear. And people in a state of fear are easy to control. They call it leadership. I call it control because that's what it is. Well, if you're worried about where your food will come from tomorrow, and the government says, if you do the right thing, you won't have to, because you may not eat filet mignon, but you'll eat and your kids will eat. You become very subject to control. And governments love control. Our, our, our government seems hell-bent to make it to any action that human beings take will require some sort of approval or permit. There are places right now, if you want to plant a tree in your front yard, I'm not making this shit up, and it's been around a long time, you want to plant a tree I mean, you went to Home Depot, you bought a 20-gallon you know, pot tree, and you're going to plant it in your front yard, and you bring it home and you dig a hole and plant the tree. Nobody may bother you, but you're risking something because there are places where you are literally required to file with your city for an earth disturbance permit to dig a hole and plant a tree in your own front yard. Where do you think it's going to stop? Do you think it's going to stop? But if we do it anyway, what are you going to do? Go start ripping people's trees out? I mean, there is a point where I guess physical resistance is necessary if they go that far. But I think that, you know, the, these people are pretty big at picking their battles. We can make so many solutions in our own backyard if we'll just act. And they don't want it, they're opposed to it because it mitigates control. It's sedition because sedition is going against your government. Now, sedition can be noble. Or sedition can be, you know, malicious. If you're going against your government by blowing buildings up, that's malicious. There's no place for that. That's not peaceful sedition. Growing a garden in your backyard, developing barter networks in your own backyard, bluntly practicing agorism, is the most peaceful sedition that people can engage in. And I believe that, you know, One of our founders, Thomas Jefferson, basically said if a law is unjust, you not just ought to disobey it, but you are obligated to disobey it. I'm paraphrasing, but that's pretty much it. The, the unjust law is not worthy of you, of you complying with it. And denying people the ability to feed themselves is about as unjust as it gets. But I think it's time for some sedition. A lot of it. Does that make me an enemy of the state? Only if the state wants me to be the enemy. Only if the state... Because I don't think it should be seditious. I don't think it should be seditious to become self-reliant and to teach self-reliance. And see, that's the thing. It's one thing when you do it. It's another thing when you tell other people how to do it. Now you're really seditious. 
I teach self-reliance, the world's most subversive practice. I teach people how to grow their own food, which is shockingly subversive. So yes, it's seditious, but it's peaceful sedition. Now, I want you to think about everything that's going on in the world today. And I'm going to quote a very famous Nazi. Not Hitler. Not Hitler. And not Himmler. I'm going to quote Hermann Goering. He was being interviewed uh, at the Nuremberg trials. Now, this wasn't on trial. This was being interviewed like in preparation for trials or like we know you're going to go away. Maybe you want to say something. So let's record this for history. And this is, this is an exact quote. This is an exact quote by Hermann Goering. Of course the people don't want war. But after all, it's leaders of the country who determine the policy. And it's always a simple matter to drag the people along, whether it's a democracy, a fascist dictatorship, or a parliament, or a communist dictatorship. Voice or no voice, the people can always be brought to the bidding of leaders. That is easy. All you have to do is tell them they're being attacked and denounce the pacifists for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to greater danger. Let's think about being self-sufficient with food. And here's another quote and some dialogue that went along with it from the person interviewing him. Goering said, Why? Of course the people don't want war. Why would some poor slob on a farm want to risk his life in a war? when the best he can get out of it is to come home to his farm in one piece. Naturally, the common people don't want war, neither in Russia, nor in England, nor America, nor for that matter in Germany. That is understood. But after all, it is the leaders of the country who determine the policy, and it's always a simple matter to drag the people along, whether it's a democracy, or a fascist dictatorship, or a parliament, or communist dictatorship. The interviewer said, There is one difference, I pointed out. In a democracy, the people have some say in the matter, though they're elected through their elected representatives, and in the United States, only Congress can declare wars. Goering responds, Oh, that is all well and good, but voice or no voice, the people can always be brought to the bidding of leaders. That is easy. All you have to do is tell them they're being attacked and denounce the pacifists for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger. It works the same way in any country. Indeed, why would some poor slob on a farm want to go off to war when the best he can hope for is to come back with what he already has? In other words, farmers aren't good for war. People that grow their own food are not good for war. People that understand nature and nature's bounty are not good for war. They're not good for the military-industrial complex. They're not easy to get to leave their homes where they already have what they have. Now, if you want people that will fiercely defend what they have... People that live off the land, agrarians, will plumb kill you for invading their property. But that's where they draw the line. This is my thing. This is what I do. As long as you leave me and other peaceful people alone, I'll leave you alone. Why wouldn't your government want that? I mean, think of how many problems we really can solve with this. I've been watching some of Jeff Lawton's old videos, and he has one called Lessons from the Rust Belt. He goes up to, uh, I think it's... It, it, it's somewhere in Massachusetts or Connecticut, um, and it's where there used to be all this industry. It was, it was first it was cotton mills, uh, first it was wool mills, and then it was cotton mills, and then it all fell apart. But there was massive amounts of hydropower there, hydroelectric and hydro and and, uh, and and compressed air as well, power. 
And all the canals still exist, and all the buildings still exist, and there's so much that could be done with it. You could turn the whole area into one of the greatest agricultural centers on the planet. You could build jobs. You could completely rejuvenate the community. And most of what you need is already there. It just needs a little bit of rehabbing and adjusting. And every single environmental regulation that's supposed to promote clean energy gets in the way of it. We could grow food, we could grow fibers, we could go, I mean, just on an amazing scale in a relatively small area. I'll find that video for you guys today and, and link to it in the show notes. But we don't want to do it. When I say we don't want to do it, I don't mean you and me, right? Poor slobs on the farm. The average person has no interest in war. No. The leaders have no interest in you having no interest in war. The leaders have no interest in you figuring out how to take care of yourself and being able to say that you don't need them. And this is in all walks of life. It's in food production. It's in barter networks. It's in agorism. But it's certainly in self-employment. How many people bent the knee and got a medical treatment that we do not know the long-term implications of only because they needed to do so to keep their jobs? How many self-employed people just said, no, I'm not doing it? Well, they're hesitant. I'm not hesitant. I've refused. I was going to make a t-shirt that says that. I am not hesitant. I have refused. And people wrote me and they said, you, you know, you're a dick. You, you say, you keep saying this, but it's easy for you. It's easy for you. Yeah, it is. I never put anybody down for, for deciding that's what they had to do for themselves. It was easy for me. That's the point. COVID was easy for me because I was prepared. That's the point. This is why self-reliance and self-sufficiency are literal acts of sedition. And like I said, virtuous sedition. See, we ruin words, don't we? When I say virtuous, did you think virtue signaling? Did you immediately think that? Virtue signaling is not virtuous. Virtue signaling is going along and wanting to be patted on the back for publicly stating you went along. Virtue is still a great thing to have. And to do something for the good of yourself and your family and others is a virtuous action. And it is a virtuous sedition to grow your own food and to teach others to do the same. And it's one reason I'll never stop. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you guys, if you like the show and the work that we do, one of the ways you can help support us is to do your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. If you go there and help support us by shopping online, no matter what you buy, as long as you start there, you will help us out. Even if it's not something I've reviewed, just start your shopping there. Today, though, item of the day is a fun one. We haven't had it in over a year. I thought, I need to bring this back around. It's called The American Boy's Handybook and What to Do and How to Do It. It was originally published in 1882. Let me tell you the only reason I even know this thing exists. A friend of mine in the mid-90s named Kurt, who I worked with, had an original copy of the book. It was like a second edition from like uh, right around 1900. It was kind of falling apart, but it was all the pages were there and legible and readable. And I tried to buy it from him, and he wouldn't sell it. And years later, I started thinking about how so many old books that were out of print had come back around. And I checked, and it turned out it is currently being printed. And this book has so much cool stuff in it. Like how to kill an animal and, and mount it with taxidermy. How to make a sling bow, which is kind of a bow, but it only has a string on one end, and you shoot it kind of like a 
It's kind of like a spear gun, but not. You'll have to get it to see how to make an atlatl. All kinds of stuff. How to, how to make hot air balloons with real fire. In other words, this is something that the politically correct and the safety police will lose their mind over. And I think that alone is why it should be on your bookshelf. And if you have young kids, and it doesn't have to be just, just boys, but if you have young kids, it might be fun with some supervision to do some of these projects with them and learn how to do it and realize what this country was like you know, about 120 years ago. Because this was a book, you just got it, and you gave it to your kid, and he went on about his life, and everybody was okay with it. I think we were a bit stronger of a nation back then. So tying back into my segment today, I think this book, because it teaches independence, self-reliance, and self-sufficiency, it teaches a need to be individually, personally responsible for your actions, is a book of sedition. And therefore, I highly endorse it, and I highly recommend it to you. With that, hope you enjoyed today's show. I'll be back tomorrow with an ex not an expert counsel. We just did that, Jack. No, I'll be back tomorrow with an Outback with Jack episode. I'll be answering a lot of your questions that came in on social media for Monday's show that I didn't get to. And then I think we're going to come back and take another look at how bad things are under the hood with America on Monday. But tomorrow, we're going to stick. It's 100% Solutions Week. You pull yourself up. They keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.